0: Hi everybody, this is Peter Diamandis. Welcome to Exponential Wisdom with my dear friend
1: Dan. Dan, how are you doing, pal? I'm really great, and uh you're a lot warmer today than we are. <laughs> yeah, I'm in sunny Los Angeles, where it's
0: in the upper sixties, and one of the advantages for a southern latitude. Yeah. So I would love to speak to you, Dan, about one of my favorite subjects in that space. There's been a lot of news lately about entrepreneurial activities in the space program, and it just gets the nine-year-old kid in me going. You're a fellow space cadet, and people who, who hear about this may think it's frivolous, or they may think it's exciting, but I think they should know what's really going on right now, because it's going to impact all of us. So what do you think about that subject for our conversation?
1: You know, Peter, I went to see The Martian, as many other people did, with Matt Damon. And I, first of all, I just think it was scientifically accurate. He didn't have any great solutions that aren't already present day science? But I think the other thing was just the spirit with which he uh, approached his predicament. He voiced a philosophy, just science the shit out of it, which was his my favorite line. <laughs> his great line. One of the things I wonder: Did you have any backstage knowledge of this before it came out? I did. Yeah, Jim Gianopolous is a chairman, and CEO
0: of Fox, and Jim Cameron, who's on my board at the X Prize first told me about the fact they were optioning the the book. And I read the book early on. And I know the producer of the film as well. They did a beautiful job. And anyone who's read, the book has got 10 times as much detail as the movie. So I commend it to you to read. And they did an amazing job. And I love a movie where there's no, this is not a dystopian film, right? The bad guy here wasn't a Terminator. It wasn't an AI. It was human versus nature. And I have to say it again, science the shit out of this is just classic line. It's the heroic notion that you can overcome through intelligence and through technology, the harshest of environments.
1: Which brings up, I think, one of the great pieces of news since we last recorded a podcast was the discovery of brine water on Mars by one of the explorer, the little robots that travel around Mars. Can you tell me the significance of that? I mean, as a layman, I sort of grasp if you got water, you can do all sorts of things. But could you sort of give the inside scoop on why this is such an important discovery? Sure, happy to. And and let me,
0: just for the early listeners, let me just tee up what I want to talk about in this podcast. Let's talk about water on Mars as a precursor to discovering life and what's going on in missions to discover life. I want to talk about where SpaceX, Elon Musk, I'm a shareholder in the company, where it's going, it's return to flight, and what Jeff Bezos just did with its new Shepard vehicle for vertical takeoff, vertical landing. I want to talk about the fact that my company, Planetary Resources, we just had signed into law a piece of legislation that allows for private ownership of asteroidal materials. It's the largest real estate piece of legislature ever signed by the president. And then talk about the notion we have, we haven't really announced this yet, but it's going to be announced very shortly that we have two teams that have signed contracts in the Google Lunar X Prize to get launches to the moon. And we expect in early 2017, two commercial companies racing to the surface of the moon. So, so much exciting stuff going on. But back to water. So it turns out that every life process we know on this planet uses water in some critical form. We as an organism are mostly all water were salt water right the inside of our cell the cytoplasm of our cell has a high concentration of salt it's effectively what we've done inside a cell is we've captured the primordial ocean that we evolved in and maintained that environment so one of the concepts as a precursor of life it's currently believed that you need to have water so it was thought and assumed that there was water on Mars, but now we know there is water on Mars. There may actually be even standing water on Mars or water subsurface, but enough that I would put money down. And if you want to make a bet with me, I think we'd probably bet on the same side that the next mission to Mars, which is going up in 2020, 2021, will discover life on Mars. I think there's life there. I think we'll find life in Europa. I think we'll find life as a fundamental force of nature in the universe Now, it may not be advanced life, it's probably cellular, but we'll start to discover, is it the same as our life? Is it the same four nucleotides, ATCs and Gs, that drive our DNA? Is it the same cytoplasmic organelles that we have? There may well be, there's a theory that, in fact, life originated on Mars, and then an asteroid struck the surface of Mars, and it dislodged rocks at such a high velocity that those rocks exited Martian's gravity field. And hit the Earth and maybe life from Mars is what seeded life on Earth. So lots of exciting discoveries that we'll probably have inside the next 10 years.
1: And I think that the big thing and of course the movie pointed this out that if you have water you can also create energy because of the hydrogen component of of water and that's a huge thing that you would immediately have an energy source.
0: Well, the ultimate energy source is the sun always. And Mm -hmm. what Martian was doing, uh, what they were doing is basically using the sun's energy to power batteries and Mm -hmm. the batteries stored it during the daytime. Mm -hmm. And then you use the energy to break water Mm -hmm. into H2 and O2, which is another storage mechanism. But we have the ability to create a energy cycle on Mars. I think ultimately, as we bring humans there, solar, because Mars is far away from the sun, so the solar intensity is much lower, nuclear will end up being sort of the preferred energy generation source for some time. You saw that with an RTG, what he used to warm himself on the long trips. But that's the smallest of challenges we're going to have. There's plenty of energy out there. And getting there is one of the biggest challenges. And let me, if I might, transition to what's going on in the launch vehicle world, some exciting stuff. Elon Musk started SpaceX as a means to build the launch vehicles to get to Mars. And while the US government, to some degree, the Russians, to a smaller degree, the Chinese are looking at Mars, I would put money on private industry, put money on a next generation Falcon launch vehicle that Elon is building, getting people to Mars first. He set a goal of being there by 2025, 2027, which is 10 to 12 years from now. And I think that he has a good shot at making it. I know that it is truly his passion and he will do everything he can to make it happen. Mm -hmm. That's why he built the company. He's launching NASA astronauts and cargo to the space station and defense satellites in the interim really to build his company. It's now valued privately at north of $15 billion and – More importantly, he's got the. I think the Greek word is chutzpah Mm -hmm. to try and no, that's not a Greek word actually, uh, to get (laughs) us there.
1: So, very exciting. The significance of what Elon Musk is doing, but also Jeff Bezos, is the reusable racket because that's been a huge waste area for all the previous government ventures is that you only get to use the launch racket once and then it falls into the sea. But as we just found out a couple of weeks ago with the Blue Origin project of Jeff Bezos, they actually brought it down within four feet of where it took off.
0: And the whole notion of reusability is critical. And I think the media got this wrong. Elon demonstrated reusability years ago, very similar to what Bezos just did with his grasshopper vehicle. So the Falcon launch vehicle is made up of a first stage. It has nine Merlin engines on it. And those engines are replicas, duplicates of each other. And then the upper stage has one Merlin engine with just a different expansion nozzle on it. So the nine engines in the first stage represent like 80% of the cost of the vehicle. Mm -hmm. And what he's done is he demonstrated with the grasshopper vehicle the ability to vertically launch and then vertically land. The Falcon 9 has made now three attempts at landing the first stage. They got very close last time and they'll make an attempt when they return to flight. But it will be different from what Jeff has done. This will be a return from very near orbital velocity. Mm-hmm. But still, what's significant here for everybody listening to realize is you've got two billionaires, both Elon and Jeff Bezos. And I've known Jeff since college. When I was at MIT, Jeff was at Princeton. I started a group called Students for Exploration and Development of Space, and Jeff started a chapter of SEDS at Princeton where he was the president. And it's been his core passion. When I first met with Mm -hmm. him back in 98, 99, early Amazon years, he said he's building Amazon to make enough money to really go out there and open the space frontier. Mm -hmm. So imagine if you would, you've got Paul Allen, you've got Richard Branson, you've got Jeff Bezos, you've got Elon Musk and many others who've got the wealth now to do what only the governments could do before. So it's going to be a very exciting race to space going on with those guys. Love it. Love the fact that it's happening with or without government spending?
1: Well, the race aspect of it is so crucial because these are highly competitive individuals, but you need the competition to keep increasing the breakthroughs in technology that are going to happen because they really do want to be first. And going right back to one of the inspirational origins of your X Prize competition, which was the first manned flight across the Atlantic with Charles Lindbergh winning, but basically it was because it was a race based on a prize. My sense is that the prize is going to become very, very apparent as we get closer to the voyage date.
0: Well, we're competing constantly in different levels, and I always say that we get the best out of people when we compete in sports, we compete in business. Why not compete to do something like open up the frontier of humanity? I mentioned earlier, Dan, when we were talking recently, that we have another XPRIZE going on in space. And that's an XPRIZE as a private race to the moon called the Google Lunar XPRIZE. Google's put up $30 million for the first team to land on the moon's surface with a robot and send back photos and videos. It turns out that we now have two teams who have actually purchased launch contracts Mm -hmm. to boost them because the teams are not actually building the launch vehicles against the moon. They're building the robotic landers and rovers. So one team is out of Israel called Space IL. They've purchased a SpaceX launch from SpaceX on Falcon. And the other team is called Moon Express, a U.S. team that's purchased a number of launches. I think they purchased three launches to the moon on Rocket Lab's it's going to be fun. We're going to have a private race to the moon surface. So really cool.
1: One question on this, Peter, because a lot of people, it's been close to 50 years now since the Apollo program, but a lot of people just don't realize how much innovative breakthrough technology that got created just by that first project. This was fifty years ago, that the private sectors and government sectors lived off of for three or four generations, including the microelectronics that were necessary. My favorite always, of course, is Tang. You know, Tang wouldn't have been created <laughs> if we if we <laughs> didn't get there. But talk about some of the things that are being pioneered for the first time just because of the challenges let's talk about the moon one, and then also talk about the Mars ones. Just some real obstacles, physical obstacles that have to be overcome. And then there's, if it's going to be a man mission, it's going to be some tremendous human obstacles that have to be created. And I know you're on the inside of this, and I think everybody would like to see what kind of pioneering, cutting-edge breakthroughs are happening as a result of this. It's true.
0: In the 1960s into the early 70s, when the Mercury, Gemini, and Apollo missions were going on and spending a good, I think it was like 3% of the gross national product in the Apollo program. People saw the end result of flag and footsteps as it was referred to on the moon. But the fact of the matter is that money fueled an incredible explosion in innovation. It built many of the large U.S. defense contractors, good or bad results out of that, but it also drove the electronics industry to a great degree, creating Much of the technology we take for granted right now in microelectronics, camera systems, comm systems, radar systems. And so whenever you force people to solve really hard problems and you limit them on budget, it means they have to innovate. And I think actually that's one of the subjects I'd like to do our next podcast on, which is the whole realm of how do you drive real innovation? And the Apollo program was that. I think the return to the moon, and we're seeing a lot of political energy right now by China and Russia to go back to the moon, which may end up becoming a race to the moon again from a national standpoint, and going to Mars. A lot of this is the human environmental side. So we saw this on the film, The Martian. How do you grow foods on foreign planets? One of the innovations that's fun that comes from a dear friend of mine, Craig Venter, is the idea of the transporter and in the following way. Imagine being able to send a device to the surface of Mars once life is formed. And instead of sending the life back, what the device does is it actually sequences the DNA Mm -hmm. of the life form on Mars Mm -hmm. and it transmits the sequence back. And then we recreate the sequence here on Earth and boot up a Martian life form, because the instruction set tells you how to build the life form. Mm -hmm. So it's transporting life at the speed of light, Mm -hmm. as uh, Craig speaks about it. So that kind of life teleporter is being demonstrated right now by his company, Synthetic Genomics, and the Defense Department and NASA. So a lot of interesting things. And you sent me an article link that NASA has just open-sourced over a 1,000 of its patents, because they want this tech to go into commercial Mm -hmm. use. So you can actually get access to NASA's patents for like zero money down right now if you want to commercialize something.
1: All right, we've got that. And then we've got the big one, which is kind of epic because of the ownership issue. And it touches very, very closely into one of your big projects, which is asteroid mining. I'd like you to talk about, first of all, just what the significance is of being able to own asteroids, asteroids, natural resources that come out of asteroids. Because it's hard for people to kind of comprehend this. I've got a historical model for the importance of this, but I'd like to hear your whole take on it. It's pretty amazing.
0: Planetary Resources, those of you who followed the effort that Eric Anderson, Chris Lewicki, Chris is the CEO now, and I back six, seven years ago started this notion It's the idea that over the last 15 years, since 2000, we've discovered a population of asteroids that come very close to the Earth. When they hit the Earth, that's not a very good thing. But there's a population of asteroids that come to the Earth. They're energetically easier to get to than the surface of the moon. Right. Meaning the amount of propulsion you have to use to get there is less than going to the moon. And because they have lower gravity fields, because they're much smaller, they're a half a kilometer in size or a kilometer in size, To get materials off of the asteroid is much, much easier than getting materials off of the surface of the moon, which has a much higher gravity field, one-sixth that of Earth. But these asteroids have a gravity field that's one-hundredth that of Earth. Mm -hmm. And these asteroids are some of the most valuable real estate. I think of them as the Manhattan Islands. And these asteroids are made up of materials that we find really important, fuels, hydrogen and oxygen as a fuel source nickel, iron, cobalt for construction materials, and then platinum group metals, platinum, palladium, osmium, iridium for strategic metals for electronics. We've worked on this for three years now, and about six months ago, the House passed legislation, the United States House of Representatives passed legislation a month ago as the Senate, and then just before Thanksgiving, the United States president, Barack Obama, signed into law... Legislation that allows a private company to basically mine and own materials taken off of asteroids and then have that as a right that they can sell. Yes. So anytime you can create that, you create an economy. And that's what gets me so excited.
1: The thing that I'm really struck by is that as I've looked at the growth of entrepreneurship over, let's say, the last seven or eight centuries, because there's some basic legal things which actually gave rise to entrepreneurship and mostly starting in Holland and Britain, you know, what is now the UK, that basically if you want to have economic growth around any area of human activity, you have to start with private ownership of property because otherwise there's not enough incentive For anyone to take the risk, to make the investment of talent and time and capital to actually go for the prize. And if you can't guarantee private ownership of property, you can't get any economic activity going around any kind of venture.
0: And that's been the case throughout human history.
1: People don't realize that it was that
0: kind of economic activity that drove our exploration of america or the settling of america and other parts of the world right you're such an amazing history aficionado dan you probably have lots of examples
1: yeah well the biggest example before the asteroids was the biggest real estate deal in history and that is in the early 1800s i think it might have been 1803 two diplomats in paris were asked to go see napoleon who was then in charge of france and Napoleon, the whole West, what makes up 17 states right now, actually belonged to France, and he knew he was going to lose them because he couldn't possibly defend them against the Americans as they move westward. So he offered them a deal, and the deal was, in 1803 dollars, 10 million dollars, and the two diplomats, knowing that to go back to Washington and then come back over would be too late and so they just signed on behalf of the United States completely illegal they had no right to do this (laughs) and they got back to Jefferson and Jefferson said sounds like a pretty good deal actually so it just became official but that was the United States owning and it's actually present day it's 17 complete states going right from the Gulf of Mexico up to the Canadian border and going west Is that the Louisiana Purchase? The Louisiana Purchase, yes, exactly, the Louisiana Purchase. And even in today's dollars, you know, if you use today's dollar, that deal was worth 50 cents an acre. That's what you would pay for that $10 million. Even if you brought it forward to $2,015, it was still 50 cents an acre. But the one you're talking about is colossal. It seems to me like a very forward-thinking step on the part of the U.S. government to do this. Hats off for you to actually opening their eyes to the possibility. But the other thing, the government owned the Louisiana Purchase, but it was actually opening it up for the development that individuals, if they moved into this territory, they could get 100 acres, they could get 200 acres, if they actually materially improved the land as they moved west. And so, again, it was the principle of private ownership of land, essentially the private ownership of anything, that's going to make open. And I think as you get the private exploration of Mars, there's going to have to be a comparable law passed that if you get to Mars and you develop something, you're going to have private ownership there.
0: You know, I could spend all day talking about the space stuff. I'll just mention one last thing about the asteroids and then let's tee up our next podcast. But these asteroids that we're targeting, what's the time frame over the next decade? We'll find out. We're racing and working hard, 3D printing, designing, building spacecraft. But these asteroids are trillion-dollar assets. Any way you slice or dice it, they're worth trillions of dollars. And even if we discount them, you know, a hundredfold or a thousandfold, they're amazing assets. So, It's just the beginning, right? With the technology being developed, the impetus now, the capability to get off planet, the regulatory frameworks in place, I think we're going to start to see the science fiction world that we read about as kids really becoming real and – I, for one, would rather depend upon the economic engine, I call it the economic exothermic reaction, than government programs to open up space. So
1: that's what gets me excited. Yeah, and it's very exciting because people in their 40s or 50s may see no point to this, but there's a lot of 9-year-olds who are now steering their future towards this possibility. And you're going to have tens, hundreds of thousands of young people on the planet who now are looking at this as a very practical, plausible career for themselves as they go forward. Yeah, amazing, amazing. So, Dan, I think next podcast,
0: I would love to talk about how do you drive innovation inside your Mm -hmm. organization? What does innovation mean? Mm -hmm. And how do you drive it inside your company, inside your organization, wherever things are stuck? How do you really move them forward?
1: Yeah, I think that's that's a fabulous subject. And I know there's many dimensions to this. So, Peter, I, for one, I'm going to be all ears because I know you've really thought this through. Buddy, a pleasure as always. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks
0: a lot.